Hey and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young Christians living in Montreal, looking at questions of faith in Jesus Christ and how to serve Him faithfully in the world today. The topic of the sermon in this podcast is how to build a marriage that will flourish under God. So we're coming to the end of our sort of mini-series on relationships tonight. Last two, second to last week, we... Uh, we talked about dating, uh, and sort of the, uh, kind of looking at perhaps making a Christian model for dating. Last week we looked at uh, the biblical sort of idea of, of sex, and this week we're going to look at marriage. It's probably not the right order to go about it in. We're going <laughs> dating, marriage, sex, but hey, what can you do? Anyway, so. Tonight, the, uh, the, the question we're going to be answering is, what is marriage for? And when you phrase it like that, I think it's a question we don't often ask. What is marriage for? Why do we do it? What's the point of it? Is it to have babies? Is that the idea? To, like, to just raise yeah. children? <laughs> well, you're pregnant, so of course you'd say that. <laughs> is it, uh, is it to, to form allies between warring nations? Is that the point of marriage? Maybe. Certainly, historically, it is. Uh, what is it for? Is it to is it to secure so, is it kind of so, social stability? Is it to get good food if you're a guy or if you're a woman? Uh, is it for you know freedom to gain weight because you're no longer on the market? <laughs> Could be. <laughs> it's probably all of those things and none of them. No, the uh, I think that the what I've become convinced of is that the the Bible's most fundamental answer to the question of what is marriage for is that it's for friendship. And I know that's kind of a strange uh, thing to lead off with, but I will spend the rest of my this sermon arguing as to why that is the case. And I want to just give a very a strong um, link at the very beginning to the book by Timothy Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. The vast majority of what I say here is, is pulled from his book, um, which I have found to be incredibly helpful in helping me understand what marriage is. But let's go through it now. And I think it's found even right in the very beginning, when we see in the Genesis account, the initial prompting for creating marriage was companionship. That it was not good for Adam to be alone. That, and it's a fascinating idea when you think about it, because when we think about what it's explaining at this point is that Adam is in paradise. He's in a place of, of you know, physical and material perfection. He has an unhindered relationship with God, because there is no sin between him and God. And yet, God still says it is not good for you to be alone. First time that it is said that something is not good about creation, about what God has made, and it's God himself who says it. God recognizes and calls out the need that Adam has for, not only simply for a, a vertical relationship with God, but a horizontal relationship with a fellow human. And so to create the perfect, I, I guess to create the relationship that will most meet that need that Adam has in that moment, he doesn't create a you know, like a father-son relationship. He doesn't create like a, a friendship relationship only. He creates a marriage. That is God's idea of what is the, the most, I guess, compelling, most filling human relationship, the, this uniquely made type of relationship uh, that he has put together and that, that it is a marriage. And so I think that's really interesting to look at that and look at the, the, the prompting for it all was one of companionship. 
And I want to argue that that's still the basis of marriage today. Of one, a wonderful marriage will be based upon this uh, friendship, first and foremost, that you have a friendship with this other person. And so what that means is that if you want to have a good marriage, I believe that you'll have to take that component of it very seriously and put that at the heart of your, your marriage. And on the other side of it, it means that if you try to create a marriage that's based upon uh, another principle, one that would not uh, find friendship as one of the key focuses of it, that I feel like you will still be destined for loneliness, that even within marriage you will find yourself to be lonely. And so this is something we want to avoid, and marrying for the wrong reasons can lead to some really tragic outcomes at the end of the day. I, I don't believe in like a marriage as if it's a sort of magic wand that a relationship that... Like, uh, obviously, there are, there are marriages that are created in heaven, so to speak, and there are absolutely marriages that are created in hell. And so we want to, <laughs> I want to give you the best possible advice that I can give you going into it to hopefully create marriages that are built upon biblical principles that will lead to flourishing. There's a really interesting verse in Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 16, where the woman who's speaking here, she, she's calling out to her beloved and she says, my lover and my friend. And I think that's a really beautiful coupling of that idea, that, that she is calling out to this, someone that she feels is strong, uh, desire for, and the, the two words that come to mind are lover and friend. It's a beautiful thing. And so let's look at, kind of take a step back from that, if, if friendship is going to be this thing that's very uh, important to a marriage, what is friendship? And we're not going to spend long on this, but I want to just sort of get, give you an idea, biblically speaking, of what is friendship. And friendship has three components to it. The first is a good friend shows constancy. Constancy meaning that they are with you through thick and thin. You've pro hopefully had friendships like this. Ones that people will, there's such a thing as fair weather friends, those who are with you when times are good, but are nowhere to be found when times get tough. And then the other, the true friends, the ones that are there with you through thick and thin. And, and that is one of the core marks of friendship when you look through Proverbs. Proverbs says a lot about friendship, and that's one of the things that it says, is there's this constancy to friends. The second is that there's a transparency in friendship. That this is a person who you're able to speak with candor. You can be honest towards them, and you can give them honest encouraging, encouragement and honest critique. You can tell them what you think is going wrong in their life without fear that you're going to uh, offend them in a way that would be uh, badly received. You know, you want to have a person who you can sort of let your guard down with and talk unfiltered. And this is a way that you sharpen each other through critique, through encouragement. You're able to have a very open dialogue with one another and open friendship as well. And so that's the second thing that, again, uh, speaks about in Proverbs, this sense of transparency that creates good friendships. And the third one is sim pathos. Like it's not, it is sympathy, but it's not sympathy the way that we understand it. So I want to break it down to the, the, the more sort of root of the word, sim and pathos. Sim meaning common, pathos meaning passion. So to have a common passion is absolutely key in friendship. There needs to be a longing for the same thing. You need to be able to have a person standing side by side and looking at the same direction, going together. Uh, they say the, the cry of friendship is really the, the phrase, you too? Like, oh, you love that too? Like, you, you enjoy that too? That is the common grounding of friendship. And I think I said this last week, or, or perhaps the week in dating, but 
when we look at the difference between sort of romantic uh, or erotic love, there's, there's, it's very natural in those, that type of relationship to stand eye to eye, even figuratively speaking, to sort of look longingly into each other's eyes and to find fulfillment in that. But if you try to do that with a friend, it's kind of weird, right? Like, you don't look longingly into each other's eyes as friends. You look in the same direction. You say, we are going to go and do this together. There's a paradox in it, and that true friendship cannot be about friendship itself. True friends are those who are committed to something outside of the friendship. And it doesn't have to be something profound. It can be a love of chess, or I don't know, a really, you know, you both find the same pair of shoes really good, or I don't know, whatever it is. It can be something very simple, but it's something that drives you in the same direction together. And that's why, sadly, um, people who just want a friend probably won't make a very good friend. Because the saying is, uh, people who are going nowhere have no fellow travelers. And so people who are feeling you know, sad and, and alone and all they want is a friend, they, they need to somehow be able to get through that and to find a passion. And then they'll be able to find someone who can come alongside them in that passion. But until they do that, it's going to be very difficult to find and maintain a friendship. And so in friendship, uh, to ask, do you love me, is essentially to ask, do you care about the same truth as me? I like that. I, it was, I pulled that from uh, the Timothy Keller book. Do you care about the same truth as me? And so we have the sense of sympathos in, in friendships that we're going in the same direction. We have common grounding. We care in the same way. And that, those three things are the foundation of typical human friendships, that there's a sense of, of constancy, that you're there with them through difficult and good times, that you can be transparent with them, and that you have something in common that you have affinity for each other, that you can go in the same direction. But then as Christians, we can add another layer to it, because there should be the case that in, in Christian friendships, not only should be there, there be this affinity for, for the same things, but there also is this sort of steel cable that runs through the, uh, all... Hello. Oh, yes, we need that. Yeah. Just push the button again, it'll come back. Okay, try again. Like go backwards or forwards. It'll come. Uh, uh, there we go. Yeah, maybe every now, every couple of minutes, hope just click it one way or the other. Okay, so we have the sort of the steel cable running through through our, our relationship with each other, and that is of Christ. That as Christians, we have these really, really big things in our life in common. That we should have had this. All of us have had this extraordinary uh, experience with the love and grace of God. That we have this encounter in our past that we have built a life upon, that of receiving an identity from God, a, a grace from Him that has rocked us and shaped us to our core. And so that's in the past, and we share this common thing in the, in the background of our lives. We also share this common thing in the, presence of, in the present tense, in that we should have the same values or similar values. We should care and love the same things. Uh, so we should have a lot in common in terms of what we want out of life. And lastly, that we're going in the same direction, that our future is we're going forward to the same goal, and that goal is one of sanctification, one of increasing godliness as we go forward. We want to become more and more like Christ. And so these things form an opportunity for a deep sense of oneness, because we can bond over these shared experiences. We can, we can have these resonating desires in common, and we know we're going towards a mutual destination. We're walking together in the same way along this Christian journey. And this can make huge, deep camaraderie between us as well. 
And so that's the added level that we can bring into Christian friendships is there already is before we even get, or maybe just on top of these more common things that we can share with anyone in the world, with specifically Christians, we can share even more in common. And these are not just peripheral things to our lives, but deeply held things to us as well. And so now we've kind of defined friendship and we understand what it is. Let's look back and, and answer the question again. What is marriage for? Well, if it's for friendship, then it means it's for these types of relationships. It's for this companionship. And if, you're, if it's a Christian marriage we're talking about, then it's companionship with a very specific point. It's you're bringing alongside someone into your life that you are setting yourself towards this glorious future that you hope for in Christ. You're setting yourself along the path of, of sanctification, of becoming more and more Christ-like in your heart, in your life. And a covenant, which is the name of the, the type of relationship that a marriage is in terms of the Bible, a covenant is one in which you're giving yourself over, you're donating yourself into this union, into, into forming something new, something uh, unified here. And so you, have, you don't just sort of give good gifts, you give yourself over to the other, to this union, in order to find the, the other and the marriage flourishing as a result. And so it takes this type of donating of yourself, but when you do this, do it in such a way that it's highlighting and, and bringing a real strong emphasis into this idea of friendship. That we, a marriage isn't, just like a friendship, isn't something which is all about looking at each other's eyes. Marriage has a direction, that it's going somewhere. It's for a purpose, and the purpose is to make you more like Jesus. At the end of the day, as Christian friends, that's one of our strong calls, to make each other more like Jesus. And we're talking about a marriage now, one that combines the just okay so on one level the human aspect of friendship that you should in terms of your wife and, and you or your husband and you should have things in common like there should be things that you both enjoy and you both find passion are passionate about on top of that is this christian friendship about you should care deeply about this person and who they are becoming in christ and on top of that, there is a romantic element as well, that you can find a, an expression for, for erotic love and for you know, that type of coupling up together. So you can combine all three of this, and when you do that, you find this incredibly rich, incredibly deep, uniquely powerful human relationship, one that is more powerful than any other human relationship speaking, because you're binding together these two forms of friendship as well as romantic love and affection. So at the end of the day, your spouse should be more than just your best friend, but never less than your best friend. If you have uh, a romantic relationship with your spouse, but you don't feel like they're your best friend, they don't feel like you're, they're your closest companion in life, I think you're not building your marriage the right way. I think there's a lot that you could be having that, you, that you're going to miss out on. Not to say that you, can't, you shouldn't have friends outside of marriage, of course not. But that there, there should be a deepness to this friendship that is expressed within the marriage as well. So I find the best expression of this truth is found in one of the most famous passages uh, on marriage, which is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 26. Now just as a, as a, a pre... A pre a, what am I going to say? 
I guess just as an introduction here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak about some of the stickier issues in just a minute, okay? Because I know this passage, you know this passage, well, you probably know this passage, is one that has sort of a lot of questions around it. And I'm sure as soon as I start, everyone's going to look down and start typing up like, text questions. But anyway, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 21 to 26. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loves, loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing with water through the word. So, we see here, I think it speaks of the goal of marriage here. And that the goal of marriage should be of mutual sanctification. There's a love that the husband is supposed to give here, and a love that is approximate to the love that Christ has for his church. And we see the goal of Christ's love for the church is that the church may be sanctified, that it may be washed uh, and made clean. And the goal of the love that the husband is to give to his wife is supposed to be approximate to that, the same as that. And so it should, I, I believe, have the same goal in mind, that the, 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 the end goal of the love that a husband is to give to his wife is so that she might be made sanctified, that she might be encouraged and helped along that journey of sanctification to be made holy. And that's quite easy to see on the husband's side, but I also see it present on the wife's side too. The submission that's being called to here is very, very much at the heart the same type of submission that Christ shows in Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about that even though he was by nature God, he you know, emptied himself and became a servant. And what was the, the goal of the submission, the, the loving, courageous submission that Christ shows uh, to the church? Well, it is one of redemption. He does it in order for the church to be redeemed. That is the goal of the submission that Christ shows. And I think it's the, the, the same type of submission that should be reflected in the, rela the, the relationship of wife to husband in that the submission is not simply for any other reason except that the love that is shown in this might cause redemption. So we have sanctification and redemption being shown here within marriage as well. The process of sanctification we see here, Jesus takes upon the role, biblically speaking, we see that in some times he is able to sanctify us because he is, at one, on one hand, our friend. We see this in, in uh, John chapter 15, verse 9 to 15, where Jesus says, I call you my friends. And, and he's, he's giving us commands out of the sense of friendship that he has for us. And that this is what calls us into sanctification and calls us to be beckoned in to be to be like Christ. And then Ephesians chapter 5, the one we just read, if you keep reading, you'll see that Jesus is united to the church in the same way that a husband is united to his wife. And so we have Jesus being the husband of Christians, the husband of the church, also so that it may be sanctified, it may be made holy. And so we see here the coupling of friendship and husbandship, or just sort of unity, like marital unity, that we find that Jesus Christ expresses, the goal of which is sanctification. Marriage, I believe, is supposed to be a, another picture of that. The, the, uh, the, this relationship is mirrored in the husband and wife relationship. 
one in which my goal as a husband is to, you know, when I think about my marriage, the, the, the one of the greatest days of all, the, our whole marriage was obviously, was one of the day it began, you know, like, so to me, still burned into my memory is the day where I'm standing at the front of the church, and I look down the aisle, and all of a sudden the doors open, and I see Debbie, and she's incredibly beautiful, and just like, just perfect, just absolutely perfect in that moment. And, and it just grips my heart even to think about it, like how wonderful she looked and, and, and how wonderful that moment was. Now, I believe as a faithful husband, what I should be doing is thinking about the day that she is going to look like that but stand before God, that she is going to stand before God and really it's going to be in glory, that she is going to be glorified as she stands before God. And I want to do all I can to prepare her for that day. I want to be able to... To, to love her in such a way and encourage her and, and, and you know, be part of that sanctification process in such a way that when I see her on that day, I'm going to express, I always knew you could be like this. Like I, this is like, I knew you had it in you. This is exactly the person I knew you were all along. You know, that type of beauty and grace and, and love uh, you know, shone out. That's what I want to see in her. Uh, that's what I want to bring out of her as much as I can as a husband and encourage her to do that as well. So we should uh, think about the day that our spouse stands before God. And we should be doing all in our power that we can to prepare them in every season of life for that day that they're standing before God. Now, to have this kind of attitude, I think it's absolutely essential that Christ be the very center of your life. It's not on, on, by accident that the whole passage, the, uh, and you know, Ephesians chapter 5 from 21 all the way down for quite a while, it's talking about different social relationships, husband and wife, uh, children and, and parents, slaves and masters. It goes on, these different relationships, and it does, it's no uh, accident that before it starts anything, it starts with verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another, everyone, out of reverence for Christ. That comes before any other form of submission, that we first and foremost are submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ, which means out of a, a love, a deep respect and honoring of Christ. This passage shows that there should already in the body of believers be this mutual submission to each other out of a deep respect and love for Christ. So we should already have at our, at our core, in our center, this, this, this great, strong, gripped heart for Christ. That we respect Him. We have reverence for Him. And then the advice that follows of how to conduct relationships come out of that. Come with Christ at the very center of our life and of our thoughts. That's where it comes out of. And out of that place, the Christian ex expression of marriage is possible. Now, that being said, I want to touch briefly, hopefully, on the, the kind of the, the, the gender roles and the way that they're specified within this passage. We see here that there is this differentiating, that's a difficult word to say, of the, the roles given here. And I know in our culture today, there is a huge skepticism around this issue. There's a huge sense of... of, of drawing back a lot from the idea of there being any distinction between, between male and female, especially one within marriage. And Quebec very, very strongly would stand on the other side of this issue. 
And we have a lot of reasons to be skeptical about it. Virtually every society that has ever existed has found a way to misinterpret and abuse the idea of male headship in one way or another, which almost always results in the mistreatment of women. Like, this is just the brutal, awful fact of history, that we have seen this happen so, so, so many times. So we have so much reason to be cautious and hesitant and be very, very careful and as, as you walk into this idea of what it means to have wives submitting to husbands. I understand that. But I also want to sort of just say, the Bible, it, it's very difficult to read the Bible in a way that doesn't express the idea of there being differences in gender roles. It appears fairly often in the Bible. And it may be culturally um, popular to try and find a way to argue out of that. But I would say, as a student of the Bible, first and foremost, I have to simply admit that it's there. And then find a way to, to deal honestly with it. And that's what I want to try and do. The, the Bible absolutely does not at all speak of there being any inequality of dignity or ability between the roles. That male and female are absolutely equal in dignity and in ability, in, 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 in value, in every way. And that is, and, and anything, anyone that would claim the Bible speaks otherwise, I think, has no idea how to read the Bible at all. We see in Genesis that there is this, this desire for Eve to come in, and the, the words that are used uh, to describe her are helper and suitable. And when we understand those words, I think we see it's not at all a denigrating role. It's not one that's supposed to be seen as lesser in any way. Firstly, the word helper is best described as one, or one who makes up what is lacking in your strength. So there are certain abilities that are on one side, but there are certain inherent weaknesses in that or, or lack within that. And then someone coming along to complement that idea that comes alongside. And suitable, suitable uh, is the other word used to describe Eve, and it's the, the definition is like opposite him. So when you put those two ideas together, I think a good metaphor to use is that of puzzle pieces. That you have two puzzle pieces that both have uh, cuts and grooves in them, but those cuts and grooves do not represent necessarily um, shortcomings, but they are design. They are by design. And so when they fit together, we see the design in the whole. And that's the whole purpose of it, that they come together to form something complete. And so that's what we see. And if that's the case, then the Bible speaks the, of the idea that gender is at the heart of, of our, who we are. That there is a sense in that. And so, so to try and deny this type of difference would be to, to stop living a portion of who we are. Now, I know, again, this is something that is... It's, it's, it's sort of culturally passe to say that. It's difficult to, um, I guess, defend it, socially speaking. But if I'm saying that the, the, the core of my belief comes from Scripture, then this is by design that God has given us. And, and I think we should see it... We should see it as something he's given in order to, to bless us. And, and there's, a, there's a giftedness to this as well, that, that we, in our gendered nature, there's a giftedness on either side of it as well. And, and you should never reject a gift without at least looking in the box, right? You should just see what it is first. And within the role of marriage, and that's actually 
the key way that we see this difference is distinguish itself. Looking at this passage specifically today, I want to focus on what we see happen when we allow these roles to take hold in our life. We see that if we do this, both, both husband and wife have an opportunity to reflect Jesus in unique and different ways. The wife has an ability to reflect the loving, courageous submission of Jesus Christ, which was absolutely a sign of his strength and not of his weakness. That submission was given by Christ as a gift, not coerced out of him at all. And a husband has the ability to express Christ-likeness in his servant leadership. So if we look again at the, the idea that is spoken of in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus Christ shows his submission, it's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of his strength. And in response, what happens? The Father lifts him up into glory. It is through that process that Jesus Christ is exalted into glory. So the, the exaltation comes as, as a response to this as well. The church is also raised to glory through the submission that the church holds. And so we have this relationship in which a wife is, has an opportunity to show Christ-likeness, which is our goal as Christians, in, in the specific sphere of this marital relationship through the submission she shows. One of the interesting things that's brought out about this passage is how it doesn't seem that there's a, there's a call for the, um, the wife to love the husband. But that's not true, actually. We see in, in verse 31, where it says there, um, at the very end, uh, the, husband must the, the wife must respect her husband. That word respect is actually the same word as uh, in verse 21, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. That word reverence. And I obviously it means different things in different contexts, but what we see here, I believe, in the same way that reverence, we're not supposed to have this cold, indifferent type of stoic, submissive relationship to Christ, but it's supposed to be one that is born out of a deep sense of love for Christ, a deep sense of admiration for him. That is the, 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 the expression of our submission. It's coming out of this love, it's coming out of this deep respect. The same type of love and deep respect that uh, is called for within a marital relationship too, that the, the wife should have this type of love and deep respect for the husband. At the same time, we see men submitting to the role of servant leadership, the type of servant leadership that Jesus Christ shows in John chapter 13, one in which he comes down to wash the feet of his disciples. And he says, you know, as I have served you, so you serve one another. This type of, of, of self-giving love, the one that comes and serves the other one, who takes that place of leadership and uses it in service to others. That is the type of servant leadership we are called to have as husbands. This type of self-giving love, the sacrifice, is what men are called to. And I know the unique, I, I understand at least, the unique differences and the new, unique struggles we find uh, between uh, you know, typical uh, problems that, that wives would have with husbands and typical problems that husbands would have with, with wives. And this is often on these two issues, that there is a struggle uh, for a wife to find it easy to submit. And it's a struggle for a husband to find it easy to, to, to have the servant leadership, that we both have these struggles within us, that it's easy for a man to, to just fall into passivity 
and have fallen into a sense of neglect towards his wife. And it's easy for a wife to sort of grab hold of the reins and, and get and, and in a sense of bitterness still, but still kind of wrestle control away and say, I'm going to do this my way. There is this sort of idea that there's a unique brokenness to this, that in those unique weaknesses we have, we have an ability to express an overarching Christ-likeness that will cover up those weaknesses that we have within ourselves. And so I don't think it's by mistake that we are called uniquely to these roles within a marriage. And when we do that, we participate in, I love, um, it was uh, Kathy uh, Keller, uh, Timothy Keller's wife, she wrote this chapter uh, that I'm, I'm referring to now, and she said that we, we participate in the dance of the Trinity. In the same way that Jesus Christ is submitted to the Father, and there's this beautiful sense of serving and honoring and glorifying and loving that's happening between them always. In the same way, we are called to, to, to sort of participate in this dance where we see these, these roles that are, that are distinguished and yet uh, this mutual sense of love and, and glorifying and upholding and honoring that's happening within that same relationship too. It's, to me, it's, it's a beautiful thing, the way that we can, we can love and serve the other where we can see and honor these differences within each other and form something that is both uh, varied and yet unified at the same time. Now, some will hear what I've said and think, well, that's a really nice idea, but what does it actually mean on the ground? Like, what does a relationship like this look like on a day-to-day? And I'm going to tell you, I, it's hard to say because the Bible doesn't go into specifics about this. The Bible doesn't go into specifics about this because the Bible is written to every culture. And there is, no, there is no set definition of masculinity and no set definition of femininity in terms of uh, that, can, that could, you, know, you could find within Scripture or you could find within the world at large. Every culture will define masculinity slightly differently and femininity slightly differently. And so you'll, there's so much variance within this that each culture will have to take this idea and try and find a way to apply it to that stage, to that, that particular uh, situation. And now that may seem like a cop-out, but at the same time, we have to do this honestly. We have to do this with, with a very honest approach of what are the specific weaknesses within our culture. What are the specific sins that we often fall into? Uh, what, what are the biases that we hold on to that perhaps we should let go of? These types of things that are, that are common in every culture we have to make sure that we're being honest about these things in our culture, too. So, that uh, hopefully being explained in to, to somewhat degree. Hopefully out of this we can see that God cares deeply about marriage. I think that's true. We can see that very strongly throughout Scripture. And he has high expectations for it as well. The goal of a marriage is to express God in this world that we're trying to do that on a micro level, day to day, how we interact with each other, and on a macro level of where we're heading together as a couple, we want to express God in this world and to pursue spiritual friendship and mutual holiness, I think is the goal of marriage. So let's, if we take this to heart, we are taking to heart something that I think will be a huge blessing to marriage. For Christians, holiness and happiness are, are found together that we will find our happiness on the far side of holiness because we have this, this Holy Spirit within us that yearns to be like Christ. 
And so this should be brought into our marriage. And if we think that, that marriage is simply for uh, the pursuit of personal happiness, it is and it isn't. On one hand, it's not simply that. There's far more to it, and that might be a selfish goal. But there absolutely should be a pursuit of, of personal happiness within marriage. But based upon the understanding that happiness comes on the far side of holiness for Christians, that as we walk that path of holiness, we gain the sense of joy in the Lord that we should experience as well. If we get, go into marriages without a sense of what they're for, I feel that marriages will stagnate. If they're just sort of left to be whatever, and okay, we got married, and I guess that's cool, and, and that's kind of the end, it's going to stagnate and just choke up and become nothing. We need to have strong goals that will drive marriages forward, drive them uh, into a sense of purpose and a sense of, uh, of longing for what comes next. And shallow goals or no goals will not help that at all. And so a high, high goal we can set for a marriage is to pursue mutual holiness together out of spiritual friendships. So not only does this change how we see what marriage should be, but it also changes how we look for a marriage partner. I think that what we should be looking first for is friendship. That we should be looking for people that we can have a friendship with. And when, once we've found these people that we can be a friend, friend with, then we can begin to see if a romantic uh, relationship could develop out of that. Quite often when we are looking for a, a potential marriage partner, it's the opposite way around. Where it's like we first look for people who we are attracted to, or we first look for people who we feel like can uh, provide some kind of, you know, social stability or, or you know, whatever. Like, uh, statistically, men will uh, put far too much emphasis on physical beauty. Statistically, women will put far too much uh, emphasis on, on material wealth when they're looking for partners. And so, instead of looking for those things, those things which definitely fade over time and are definitely very rocky, we should instead be looking for friendship, first and foremost. The other thing that comes to play when we talk about compatibility is more and more these days, people define compatibility, like what they're looking for in a, in a future spouse or in a long-term relationship is, quote, someone who will accept me as I am and doesn't want to change me. And I understand that, but that is a pretty shallow idea of what you're looking for in a person, particularly when you're coming from the idea of if this is supposed to be this amazing relationship that is supposed to sort of help me become who I am supposed to be in God, how can the goal be to find someone who doesn't want to change me? We should instead be, be looking as we're looking out into the potential pool of people that you know, we could find a, a husband or a wife in, we should be looking and, and try to fall in love with what God is making that person into. By looking at them and say, you know, I see these glimpses of your talent and of your, your, your heart and of your, you know, your promise. And I can see how, how amazing that is. And I want to be a part of that flourishing. I want to be a part of seeing that come more and more into your life. Not ignoring the faults and flaws and weaknesses that people have, having a sober view of who they are in this moment, but accepting not who they are completely, but who they are becoming as well. As you both submit to the work that God is doing in your life, you want to be able to look at your partner and say, I see the kind of person Jesus is making you into, and it excites me. 
I want to be part of that process of seeing who you will become. To have in your mind that vision of that day where you will stand before God and I want to do all I can to see, to, to, to help you prepare for that day. That, I think, should be what we look for in terms of compatibility. Someone who we can be excited about what God is doing in their life and want to come alongside them and see, uh, see that come to fruit as well. Uh, to find a friend first and then a lover second. I think that should be our aim when looking for someone as well. So with that right view of, of a spouse, of how to find a spouse, and, and I think a right view on marriage, hopefully what we can do is step into marriages that have a better chance of success. It's a sad reality today how many marriages end in failure, uh, how many marriages are almost broken from the start because of broken expectations and faulty thinking. But there are a couple people here who are married. And so I want to end off with giving a little bit of advice to those who are married. Firstly, and this is not just to them, this is for everyone as well, but number one, one thing I've learned is marriage is not up to you to define. Marriage is built with a purpose, and it functions according to the design that God has given it. Marriage is designed to be the most powerful human relationship. And what that means is if we start deprioritizing it, or we begin to try and find what we should find within the marriage in outside relationships, it will cause a weakness within our life. It will cause a, a, a problem within our life. We, we're not, we don't have the freedom to simply uh, define marriage how we want it to be. It, it is a certain way, and we need to respond faithfully to that design and treat it as it's supposed to be treated. And so that means you must put high, high priority on your marriage. You cannot have your career be more important. You cannot have your children be more important than your marriage. And in that proper ordering of things, I think you'll find not only will your marriage flourish, but your life will flourish as a result as well. It's the only thing that should be higher uh, in terms of your priority is God. But it should take priority over work, over family, over kids, over church, over parents. I know a lot of times parents can be a hugely difficult thing to deal with in, in marriages. I, not in mine, by the way. I don't want that, you to misconstrue what I just said. My in-laws are awesome. But I know a lot of the time that you know, the husband can be pulled in one direction by his mom and another direction by his wife, or you know, the wife, it can be the same thing. You need to side with your wife, or you need to side with your husband. It's a leaving and a cleaving that comes together in a marriage, and that is important to note as well. The second thing uh, I want to give as advice is being in love is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. Being in love in this sort of like romantic, passionate, kind of like everything's bubbles and rainbows type of thing, uh, the type of like things that movies focus on, that's a great thing, but it's not the best thing. That type of feeling fades, and you cannot expect something that's a feeling to last. It won't last. But it is replaced by love that comes as an act of will, love that comes from a place of saying, I, I choose to love you on a daily basis. I choose to give myself to you on a daily basis, even when I don't necessarily feel like I like you very much, even like when I feel uh, down in the dumps and I feel I'm having a difficult time. I'm going to choose to keep loving you. I'm going to choose to honor the vows that I made for you. And when we do that, we break into this sort of deeper type of love and intimacy, one that is, has withstand a quieter, 
you know, like a river that has like a, you know, a deep channel, this real strong sense of love. Who we are is a collection of the wise promises we keep. I think that's what defines us. Who you are is not your feelings, because they float around. Who we are is not your goals of what you want to be in life. Who you are is the promises you keep. And when you keep the promise to keep loving each other, you actually express your freedom. Because you're saying, I am not simply uh, a victim of circumstance. I am not simply uh, you know, tossed by the waves of culture and change and feelings. I have chosen who I am going to be, and I am going to be the person who will be with you for the rest of your life. That's who I choose to be. And when we keep those promises and continue to live in them day by day, we open up, we, we deny options to ourselves now, only to open up deeper, more fulfilling, more lasting options down the line. Where we open up a sense of intimacy, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose that will get deeper and deeper over time and will lead to, I think, the best type of love and life that there is in this world. So, I think if you pursue marriage with that type of attitude, then you're going to do much better than average. So I want to pray for us now, and then I'm going to turn over Jay to see what questions we have. Let's pray. Dear God, I, I want to pray for everyone in this room, Lord, those who are single, those who are dating, those who are married, uh, those who are, have gone through divorce, Lord. I pray for all of them, Lord. May you help them, God, to weather the, the, the life stage that they are in now, to do so in a way that honors marriage, that honors who you are and, and who you are calling us to be, that holds you at the center of their life. God, I pray for everyone that, that we might start by reconciling with you, by having a reverence for you above all, and then from that place, reach out to each other to seek to build relationships that are built upon the principles you have given us to find flourishing within that. Lord, for everything that has been left unsaid, and there is so much, I pray that your grace would come and you would answer the heart's longings that are here in this room. You would deal with the hurt and the pain that is being experienced by many people, I'm sure, around the idea of broken marriages and broken relationships. And I ask, Lord, that your, your grace and love that can cover a multitude of sin would be able to come in and cover the wounds and the hurts that, are, that, are, that have been felt over a lifetime. And that you, you, we would see you as what our heart truly desires above all else. And everything else outside of that is simply a way of expressing more and more the love that we have already felt in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. How did it go? Good. Oh, good. What's our question number? I don't know. We'll see how we go. Okay. We'll see how we go. First question. How many are there? I have a total of 12. Oh, that's not too bad. Okay. Probably went out to them, but okay. First one. Uh-huh. Did you choose your sweater or did Debbie? Dang. My wife <laughs> my wife uh, My wife bought it for me. But I chose to wear it today. Excuse me. I like this sweater a lot. I hope you do too. I'm gonna I'm gonna like take the high road and assume that was a compliment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what has been the most difficult thing about Oh, good. Um, uh, the, mo- the most difficult thing 
uh, I'd say it's a sense of, um, I guess it's like, like the, the sacrifice that's almost on a daily level, mm -hmm. where you, you definitely go through seasons where you don't really like each other <laughs> for a little while. Mm -hmm. And in those seasons, it's hard to, um, to not give in to pettiness or to give in to like, bitterness. Uh, my advice would be, in those seasons and out of those seasons, the, the biggest problem that your marriage will ever face is your own selfishness. Mm -hmm. If both spouses believe that, then you, you're going to do okay. If, if one spouse is saying, the biggest problem our marriage faces is like, you know, is your selfishness. <laughs> then obviously, yeah, that's not going to be good. But if you both take that to heart and, and, and like work it like killing that sin within your life, um, selfishness by nature breeds like blindness. We're very attuned to someone else's wrongdoing. We're very uh, blind to our own. And so when we sort of deny that aspect of, of our, you know, gut reaction to things and, and choose to sort of live above that, uh, that's the key to overcoming that difficulty. Oh yeah, well I think ultimately it's, um, I wish I could ask a follow-up question. I, I guess I'll try to answer it in two ways. Uh, marriage will always be a risk, like relationships are risky, like putting yourself out there is risky. I think that the best way you can be ready for marriage is to have a very good, like, sober-minded view of what it's going to be like. You know, to, to, to sort of forget about the romanticized ideas of, of you know, these like um, hyper, like, you know, passionate and kind of like, I don't know, like very, very uh, idealistic views of what a marriage is, and say like, oh no, it's going to, it's going to kind of give way into this type of like I was expressing in the end, this type of love that comes as a choice, this love that, that comes as an act of will. And when you do that, I think you're, you're going you're gonna to be in a much better position to meet marriage head on. And on the other side of the thing is, uh, if you, how do you know, if you're already in a relationship and you're curious as to whether you should take that next step or not, um, I think that the, the best advice I could give you is to just bring it before, like friends uh, and God in prayer, to ask like wise wise friends that you have, like, what do you think? Uh, and then to bring it before God in prayer. Because there is literally a point in time when the most loving uh, thing you can do for another person is to marry them. Like, there's going to come a point where, like, that's the thing. So, yeah, you, you don't want to miss that or delay it. Okay, I, I could try. Um, to do it again. So essentially the way I see it is that in the same way we see as like Jesus Christ's um, I guess character or his, certainly within, within his incarnation was one in which he took the place of submission to the Father. He, he submitted not only to the Father's will but he submitted also to the role he took as servant. But that this was, when you see in Philippians 2, it's not an act of uh, weakness at all. It's, it's an act of great strength, that he does this out of great strength of character to, to submit so that in that submission, redemption would happen. Mm -hmm. 
And I think God has put marriage together in such a way that there is a role of, of leadership and there is a role of submission to leadership. And in both expressions, sanctification comes through those things. Mm-hmm. I, that's, that's what I think. So, so both of them are calls to be Christ-like. Is there another question now? <laughs> okay. Actually, it's not the only um, way. Like we see uh, in um, First Corinthians, uh, Paul talk about uh, that if if uh, if the if the the like so if you if you're a Christian and then you're married, you know, like so let's say two people get married and neither of them are Christian, and then one of them becomes a Christian and the other one is is um, like it refuses to live with the other person and just neglects them. Uh, then that person is not bound to stay. But that person can leave uh, the marriage. And I think, though, that that's a very, quite a specific uh, idea. I think there's a larger principle at play. And I think similar to, to I think you can make a similar argument to what Jesus Christ is talking about uh, in, in, in what he says, uh, except for marital unfaithfulness. Uh, I think you can make an argument to say if someone uh, is neglecting the covenant in terms of unrepentant. Uh, Willful sin, that marriage should not, sorry, divorce should not be the first option, the second option, the third option, or, you know, the, you know marriage, divorce is always the very last option. But that if there's been a repeated, you know, let's say uh, people coming and say, you know, like addressing, let's say it's the, the abusive husband, addressing it and he refuses to, to repent, and then, you know, the community comes alongside and, and removes the wife from the situation. You know, there's a, there's a trial separation and there's a refusal to take counseling, there's a refusal to change, there's like a pattern of abuse, like a pattern of this sustained thing, then and I would say that there's, um, there would be a definite case to say that there's been a breakdown of the covenant, there's been a neglect, an abuse, a, uh, yeah, a, a marital unfaithfulness at that point as well. Yeah, I think that the wife, if she is seeing her husband not do it, that she should do it. Um, but she should do it in a way that says, like kind of calls him out on it, essentially. I think we see in, like, in the book of uh, Judges, Deborah takes upon a, the role of leadership within the, the, the nation of Israel. She does it because there's no man that's to be found that will do it. But then when God provides someone to do it, she, she gives the role to him. Um, I think there was there is, at that point there was a specific kind of wisdom that she showed in doing that. I think that in a marriage there is a, another kind of wisdom shown in allow like sort of the wife not allowing passivity to go unchecked and unchallenged, but at the same time to act to still allow her husband, sometimes an act of grace, to still have the freedom to step into that role and to step into the role that, that God is calling him to. Did I answer the question? Maybe. <laughs>
where do babies come from? I don't think I don't think you needed to answer ask me that question. I don't know. Who knows, man? <laughs> Debbie just goes to the hospital and she comes back with a baby. Like, I don't know. It's happened twice now. I'll ask her next time. <laughs> Ooh, good one. Um, I think in all in ways that would not uh, compromise her allegiance to Christ. So I think that there can be a social submission, um, there can be a familial submission, but in terms of a spiritual submission, her authority is to Christ. And so in terms of rearing children, if the husband has an objection to sort of allowing the children to be um, you know, taught scriptural truth or for the wife to be allowed to go to, to church um, or things like this, I think that that's when her higher allegiance to God uh, should, should take um, precedence. How do you feel about transgenderism and Yeah, I, I, I assume something like this would, would come up. Um, let me tell you how I feel about the topic as a preacher. Um, I don't, I don't address it from the pulpit, because I find that it is something that um, is just not helpful to do from like this position to that position. I've had many, many conversations in my office about this type of issue and, and, and similar issues, but I find that if you try to address it from the, from like you know this kind of relationship. Um, it's just very, very easy to fall into misunderstandings. And if it's something that someone is struggling with, then I would say I would far rather speak to you face to face because I'm hoping through that type of interaction you would understand my heart and you would understand um, the nuance in what, I'm, what I say. Uh, and I feel like if I just do it from here, there's no chance for that. So. I want to say I'm not going to answer the question, but I'm not going to answer it for that reason, because I don't think it'd be ultimately very helpful. Why is it important to keep praying for our future spouse, even if we don't know if we'll be married in the future? Why does God ask us to do that? I don't know if God asks us to do that, but um, I guess it's good, it's good wisdom to do that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I would say that it's probably part of the preparation that we should take as Christians in terms of preparing ourselves for that next future stage. Um, I, don't, I don't know if there's ever a bad reason to pray for you. I don't know. There's probably a lot of good reasons for it. I've never thought about a reason. I've just always thought it was a good thing. Good question. Um, probably what's a better way of praying as a single person would be two things. Number one, pray that God would prepare you for that relationship. And number two, pray that in every season that you live in, you would be able to live in the contentment that Christ brings. So you wouldn't have the sense of like, I'll be happy when that happens. Because you can be happy and contented and peace now. And then you can also be exactly the same amount of happy, content, and at peace when you get married as well. So to, to pray that into your life, I think, would be the far more beneficial way of spending your time. And how do you prepare your heart for marriage? Um, okay, so your heart, 
I guess, would be prepared through um, learning like how to how to love sacrificially. I think so. Trying to do that for people in your life, uh, trying to do that for God. Uh, I think that putting Him at the center of your emotion, the center of your thoughts, will help you to be in the right like spiritual framework to come into a marriage. And I think that. Um, uh, yeah, I guess that's it for that particular question. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, it says God hates it, um, but it also. I think divorce is like. I think it's a it's a deeply, like catastrophic thing, that really hurts a lot. And I think that's the reason God hates it. God calls it violence. And I think that people who have gone through it would probably attest to that. And I'm not, and, and I hope you don't hear what I'm saying as a way of like judging those who have gone through a divorce, because I absolutely understand the, the pain and the brokenness that comes in that situation. Uh, but I think there's a good reason why God calls it violence. I think it's, it's a, it's, it is, it's a really hurtful, like painful thing to go through. Uh, like I said previously, I think it should always be seen as a very last resort, but that, you know, as, as Jesus says, like Moses gave us, due to the hardness of our hearts, like our hearts are still hard today. I think that there's, um, there's probably, yeah, a time when it's appropriate, but it should always be uh, done within the context of repentance and of... You know, those who have gone through it or are about to go through it or whatever should be like this. The community should surround them uh, with, with, with you know, love and encouragement to, to try to get through that that season. Um, I'll also admit that it's it's a part of my theology that I'm not probably as well versed as I should be in terms of the ins and outs of it because, yeah, there's there's passages which I'm really not entirely sure how to how to interpret them at this point. Um, so. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not as well uh, equipped as I should be to answer that question. Is there any other questions? Yeah. Serious ones? Or? Okay. Does the Bible say that there is a predestined I guess it depends on, your, on what you mean by that. God knows all things. So does he know who you're going to marry? Yes. Does he have a hand in it? Uh, but is it do you, is it like the idea of a soulmate? Um, I don't. The Bible definitely doesn't speak of the idea of a soulmate. The Bible speaks of the idea of compatibility, and that's it. Yes, I know. Um, Paul. Talks about Find yourself in a place where you can, you have sort of like this, this you know, potential 
marriage partner. Uh, yeah, I get that, you know, with the high mobility and the, you know, the way the families aren't playing as much of a role in the people's lives they used to, like, it, it's not always possible. I'd say it's just a very good thing to have, um, but it's not, like, this essential thing. Um, more essential than that is just to follow the Bible um, in what it says. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast today. If you have any questions for us or you want to find out more about us, go to the website peoplesmontreal.org. Follow the links to the CU20 page. There you'll find the list of our sermons, podcasts, and the email addresses of our leadership team. Hope you have a good day. God bless you.